Hello, how are you? If you're new here, my name's Alice. I'm really, really happy that you're here. Hope that wherever you are in the world listening to this, that your day is going really well. People said some really beautiful things about the last episode, Midwinter Day episode. I really appreciate you all following me into the more experimental realms of making this podcast. Uh, I know it can be a bit of a surprise when I go off the rails like that, but I I have fun. And yeah, thanks for thanks for going with me there. This is a much more uh, much more standard, traditional poetry podcast episode. This is an interview with Nicholas Powell. Nicholas was back in Australia recently from Finland, where he's been living as an expat for about 10 years. And he was here to launch his second collection, which is called Trap Landscape. It came out from Hunter Publishers earlier this year. And he came home to tour to launch the book at the State Library here in Melbourne. I was so happy to hear about all the support that Nicholas had as he was going on his East Coast tour. I think it's really cool that you could be overseas for 10 years, come back, and everybody would be keen to come out and see you. We recorded this at Luke Beasley's house. Uh, Luke and Nicholas are good friends, good poetry mates. So thank you so much, Luke, for letting us sit around your kitchen table to record this. If you're a Luke Beasley fan, I think you'll be a Nicholas Powell fan. I think there are some strong links between their books, and I think that they're very much in conversation with each other. We actually ended up talking about this book, Trap Landscape, in our poetry group last week, and kind of debating between us the the merits of play for the sake of play with language, which I think Luke does, and Nicholas is doing a lot here. It was a good conversation, and I still don't know where I land. I think there's strong arguments to just just mess around. I can also see how it might take a little bit to get into work like this and I hope that a conversation like this helps, helps you to get to know the writer behind the poems. Nicholas and I do talk a little bit about that question of play for the sake of play and I also try to put together which other poets is Nicholas in conversation with. Um, When I put together the show notes for this, the list of people who were mentioned was just too too long so I've I've condensed it but if you if you hear a name and you want to know more feel free to get in touch with me poetry says pod at gmail.com we also debate a very very serious guardian article um, about what poetry should be doing uh, by a writer called Ben Ockrey and Ben argues we must write as if these are the last days and Yeah, Nicholas and I come down slightly different places on that article. We talk a lot about what it's like to write outside the country as well and what what it's like to come back and dive back into the poetry scene and what Australian poetry looks like from that kind of outside view, that expat view. At one point, Nicholas uses the word internecine, which I... I had never heard that word before. I interpret it as meaning clicky. It doesn't mean that at all. It means destructive to both sides in a conflict. 
amazing word, amazing word. Before I get into the conversation proper, just want to take a minute to celebrate a few milestones for a few listeners. Peter Bukowski is going to launch his eighth full-length collection, which has just come out from Recent Work Press, Our Ways on Earth. That's going to be on the 14th, Thursday the 14th, at the East Melbourne Library. And Joan Fleming is finally launching her book, Song of Less, at Mycelium Studios in Brunswick East on the 15th of July. That sounds like it's going to be a really beautiful night, and I know that that launch has been a long time coming. Big congratulations to Joan. I hope you all have a beautiful night. I can't go to either of those things because we have family visiting, and as as we all know, family and poetry do not mix. I also heard from another listener on the total other side of the world, a poet from Brussels called Regan Sova. Regan has just finished his tour in promotion of his new book, um, and I was really fascinated by this one because it sounds like it has a really strong link to the work of the poet Frank Stanford. I talked to Alan Wern about Frank Stanford years and years ago, and um, wow, what an amazing and strange um, story that is of, of Frank Stanford's life. So I'll link to the the book trailer that Reagan has put together for his book. If you're a Frank Stanford fan, you will want to know more about this one. And just really, really briefly, a bit of shameless self-promotion before we get into it. Uh, I've been on a bunch of episodes of the wonderful Slee Ricketts podcast recently. Um, very grateful to Matthew for having me on so often. I love talking to him. And if you've never listened to it before, I'm going to link to the episode that we did about manifestos, too many manifestos, because I think that that is a good starter episode, a good place to dive in if you've never listened to the show before. If you have listened, if you're a fan, you might be interested to know that we are going to do an Ask Me Anything session on The Secret Show, myself, Matthew, and Brian, the other regular co-host who I adore. Um... Yeah, we're just going to be answering uh, anything you want to ask us. So get in touch with Matthew if you want to send a question through. And finally, big thanks to my beautiful friend Alice Edie and her friend Jessamy for having me on their new podcast, The Imposter Syndrome Club. That conversation was just fantastic. I... They, they have this conceit where they start off by asking you to, to read out your own bio and then dismantle it, and it kind of went from there into this, this great conversation. They're just naturals. This was only the third interview they'd ever recorded, and they obviously, they just know how to be podcasters. Jessamy emailed me recently and said that they, they were something like number six on the philosophy list um, for podcasts in Australia. And of course, I, I didn't feel envious about that at all. Um, please don't ever tell me how to look up those lists because that will just, that'll be the end. But yeah, I was really happy with that interview and ended up waxing lyrical about a bunch of poets, Louise Carter, Melinda Bufton, Gareth Morgan, and talking about, yeah, where where I'm at in terms of writing and performing and all that sort of stuff 
So if you if you want yet more Alice Allen in your life, listen to that one. For now, here is my conversation with Nicholas Powell about his new book, Trap Landscape. Hope you enjoy and thank you so much for listening. So you've been you've been here for a month. You've been up to Brizzy, Queensland Poetry Festival. Did you go to? You've been to Sydney to do a reading there too. I did. Yeah, I did the yeah. Sappho Books in Glebe. Lovely. The other night. And now you're here to do a couple and actually launch the book proper on Tuesday. That's right. How do you yeah. feel about doing? I that? feel good. I've done three readings from the book since I've been out here, and I feel. I'm just getting into the swing of it now. Yeah. And the Sappho reading in Glebe was really great. People actually listen. Uh, there was a ton of people there, probably more people than I can ever remember reading to. But That's great. I've been a bit of a hermit for the last 10 years. So, mm. yeah, it was really, really, really good. Are poetry audiences in Finland a little on the sparse side? Well, of course, poetry happens in Finnish in Finland. Of course. <laughs> um, so it's very rare that we get English language poets yeah, okay. to Finland. But I was just telling Luke about uh, a time I went to see Ron Padgett. Oh, really? Read at the university there. Mm. Yeah, there was a Finnish poet called Levi Letti, and he had some like connections with the. New York poets and Ray Armentrout. He had come one time also. I was going to ask you about Ray. Yeah. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. She's very, very important to me. I love her. Oh, and right. Uh, when I was reading your book, there was one poem in particular that I came across and I thought, oh, it's, it's Ray. Ray's here. Oh, really? Do, okay. Do you, do you feel a connection with her though or is that just something that I'm projecting? Not really, actually. I don't know where you you would have got that, to to be honest. Totally but fine. I mean, I, I like her work, um, but I don't know. I've been more drawn to you know someone like Pam Brown, I guess. Well, okay, interesting, because yeah, I don't I don't know if um, I don't know if Pam reads or is interested in Ray Armitrout. I should ask her, but. Um... Yeah, I don't know. I can see, but I can you know, see a connection there. Like, yeah, yeah, I was really privileged to meet for about two minutes. Mm. Ron Silliman also came to Finland. Yeah, right. Uh, one time for a festival, mm. and uh, and he, I told him that I was from Australia and so on. He's like, oh, I've got a friend from Australia, Pam Brown. Like, really? Oh, wow, I did not really know cool. that Pam was friends with Ron Silliman. <laughs> I don't know what the connection is or oh how deep God. it runs, but okay, I've got mm. a lot of follow up questions for Pam. Um, well, so the Ray Armentrout poem, I will call it that in heavy air quotes because that's clearly not what you're going for, but it's this poem called Face Mist. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if you would mind reading this one, would that be okay? Face Mist. Your legacy, amour or armour, you may not get back the full amount you originally invested. Sleet, surrogate tears, melt on impact, teasing out a nest, egg of future vehicles impenetrable to saltwater allegory. So odd and hard to beat, the living day lights out of me. Take tax, 
the issue of the shadow more seriously. If all goes well, we bundle lots of deprivations in a single index, inject fresh men's clothing and play soft music, for these creams are ultra-rich. Okay, I can see what you're on about. Now. Really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, now I can, yeah. I'll these these words, you know, like deprivations, index, the words of neoliberal discourse that she sort of like just tweezes in there yeah. in her very kind of precise way. And the lines are short. See, most of the, the poems in, in this book, the lines are longer. But yes. that's more like ray lines. Yeah, that poem's probably not representative of the rest of the book, but it, it stood out to me and it reminded me of a poem that she published in 2020 called Our Days. And in that one, she says, you need to decontextualize an object in order to see it. And I thought about how that's kind of working in really all these poems. But yeah. 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 Well, of course, that's endlessly interesting for me and many contemporary poets, this sort of like, you know, element of collage or whatever you want to call it. Mm. But you take a word or a chunk of language uh, and you place it in a new context and interesting things happen. You get to see it for the first time in some ways. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me about your connection to Pam's work then, because she's also very much a, a guiding light for me. But I'd love to hear what she means for you. Well, just the element of fun in it, I guess. Mm. You know, we talk sometimes with such gravitas about how serious it all is and all of that. But just I think um, that it is also our job to be extremely cheeky and that that's, that's serious also. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, all I want to say about it <laughs> but because I don't, like, I don't know her personally mm -hmm. and I don't know if, like, my work has any kind of affinity with hers. Cheeky is the key word, I think, one of the key words when I was reading about your work and reading this book in particular. Do you think it's a it's the job of Australian poets specifically to be cheeky, or do you think that like is that something like a larrikinism thing that we? Uh, is I that don't. Strain? Yeah, I don't really like the word la larrikinism. Okay. No, because I think um, what uh, contemporary Australian poetry is pretty well placed to do is to sort of like um, unpack those notions of you know, what it, whatever it is to be Australian and um, to kind of poke fun at the, like, performative aspects of our culture. Yeah. Well, that brings me to another poem I wanted to ask about, which is written, I don't want to say about Joby Elke-Peterson, but in ref with reference to Joby Elke-Peterson. It's called Q Without My Female Typist. Um, I won't get you to read it all, but would you like to read some of that one as well, just to give a bit of context? Yeah, I can. Yeah. I can also say that that poem uh, was written, I was commissioned to write that poem in response to the Canadian poet Angela Rawlings, who had come out to Australia and done uh, some poems which used a lot of like the uh, proper names of birds. 
uh, which is kind of like up my alley. So it was fun to do. And so I sort of started thinking about, you know, uh, birds and how to work it into the poem, but also the landscapes that I grew up in and around in Queensland. And uh, the, I guess the, um, the agricultural history of that place, the way it had been settled. And also like my grandfather, for example, was in the National Party. And, you know, I have an, had an uncle who was in the Young Nationals and stuff. So he was kind of like this like figure which ghosted over my youth. Mm. So in a way, I think like a lot of poets who come to poetry and you're kind of writing your way out of where you come from. But when the work comes into the public arena, it's a way for you to re-engage with that culture. So it's complicated. Yeah. But again, that's an example of a poem where... Uh, so what I do, the italicised lines in the poem are, are directly taken from his memoir uh, of being a young man and a kind of like bulldozer entrepreneur. Uh, but it also, I mean, he's not trying to be funny, uh, but it, it's just a, like a glimpse into, you know, what, what the rural mindset of 1950s Queensland and how those things are still playing out. Absolutely. I mean, well, Queensland's had a little bit of a, a moment with the election going all the way from Liberal to Green in some places, but it's not not to say that like every single part of it is somehow transformed in the last month. But yeah, why don't you read a little bit from that one? Because this to me too seems like another example of decontextualizing an object in order to see it. So suddenly I was the owner of a bulldozer. Rather than let it sit idle, I took it down to a small property covered by large trees, hundreds. To Slalom, the bellatrist pines on a ridge in a salmon flat, a race against time over a zigzag course, from Norwegian sloping track, off with those bifocals, on go the goggles, see double. Meanwhile, in quasi-triangle, the bleeding obvious bottlenecks, one's tonsils, sprouting a crown, best coward, 2001, country and western, why and wherefore, compounding sand and shoe, tied up with wire. Is it a cockatiel or two? This is your wife, juggler of whippersnippers, slang for slang, she dubs you stubble quail. One who tends or drives cattle, participant in rodeos, frontier cha-cha. Today you see a huge area covered with brigolo, no tomorrow. One of many men without mothers, the tale of the queue, the lasso loop, when he's in a fight, taboo, cuckoo, a cuckold's lie. True owls, decoy eyes, misinterpret signs, stop and light up. Having pulled the trees, I bulldozed them into huge piles for burning. Crowds of people had been turning up to watch, so impressed by what they saw that before I finished clearing that paddock, 
my bulldozer had been hired for my first two jobs. Great. Thank you. <laughs> I could read I can go on, I could read the next the next line because yeah. uh, his wife was Florence who was a typist. And uh, I don't really spell this out in the poem, mm. but the next lines are this predates Florence, female typist, which is Finnish for without my female typist. A good example of how you can sell people an idea if you can demonstrate to them how it works. Yeah, I just love, I love the lines from his autobiography and the way that they, they sit up against your writing. Like, yeah, they just, they just, pop out and like their ridiculousness is sort of laid bare. Yeah, because the, because the funny thing is like his um, ancestry was Norwegian. Oh, really? I, I don't know if he was born there or if he came as a small child. I, I can't remember. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm right next door to Norway these days. So these like the slalom, the skiing, the uh, I'm not sure where Florence was from, but uh, my father-in-law when I came to Finland he would try and teach me some things in Finnish and this was the first word that he tried to teach me was the compound word without my female typist which it has taken me about 10 years to pronounce it um, and um, to celebrate I thought it needed to be in the poem, be in the poem. Mm. Did, did he think that was going to be useful to know that word or he just wanted to he likes to stump people mm -hmm. mm. okay so well thinking about queensland and cherby Alki peterson and you also mentioned family connections to the, the national party and all that sort of stuff and my understanding is you've been away from australia for about 10 years is that right yeah, yeah. i think even even longer right almost 12 years so do you feel a change and a difference when you go back to Brisbane at all? Or does it feel much like the Brisbane that you left behind? Um, it's a good question. The, the city itself, I think, it, it still has its like, you know, essential character. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's like anywhere that's so much about the commerce. Um, I had the, the book launch was at Archives, Rare Books in the City. Oh my God, which seems, so jealous. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, I love that bookshop. It, it's great, but it's like, seems to me to be like the only place in the CBD, which is more, it's a business, but it's more about culture than commerce. So it's a real anomaly. It's incredible. In that town. It's like a holdout. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, you know, I have a love, love, hate relationship with Brisbane but I was really reminded of how much it's you know the traffic is in your face like all the time it was it was good to get out of there after almost a week so that political change that I was talking about before that is is any of that I suppose if you've only been there for a week maybe it's not time enough to sort of see that sort of thing but yeah I don't know see uh, I guess Maybe that's how we felt in 2007 with Kevin and stuff. So these things have their vicissitudes. So I, tr I don't really get too optimistic about these, these things. 
um, and I, I'm not really well placed to speak to it because I, you know, I read the news, but I'm not here. I don't really know mm. how people are feeling and so on. Well, it's interesting you say that because I, I feel as if being an expat, sometimes you do have a twenty thousand foot view. Sometimes you can see your home country from angles that we who live here are just blind to. Mm. Is there anything that stood out to you since you've been here, things poetry-wise that maybe we seem obsessed with or completely oblivious to? Uh, yeah, so I hear all the gossip like everybody else, but I'm lucky <laughs> I didn't enough, hear any gossip. But I'm just lucky enough that I can sort of extricate myself from most of it. Um, but sometimes, you know, it does seem a bit, uh, what's the word, internecine? Uh, Can you tell me when that one? Um, just a bit, um, you know, we have like, you know, groups and camps and I don't know, it's... Uh, like clicky? Yeah, mm-hmm. may, maybe clicky. Yeah. And I think that a lot of us are um, advocating for, um, some, you know, a things in poetry which are more like conducive to our own work and so on. So maybe we're not so aware of our like biases as probably what we should be. Mm. And I think they're in talking to some people who are more like advocating for other poets and who have more of a mindset of abundance or something. Uh, Because I think often in poetry, it's a shame when if we understand it as like a zero sum game, that if somebody gets something, then that means I miss out or or whatever. Um, but you know, art is long, hope, hopefully, and uh, so we're all going to have opportunities at some point, and you know, things will go in and out of vogue and mm. and all of that. And I was talking to a friend yesterday who just said, you know, like everybody should, you know, just be committed to writing poems and. Um, things will come in and out of uh, vogue and the main thing is to, to just keep going. Yeah, yeah I, I remember my sister-in-law saying something to me like that many years ago when I was getting very, very wound up about a friend who got an opportunity that I I felt like was mine for some reason. It definitely wasn't, mm. but in that moment I felt like it was my thing and she had got it and she is an actor, so in her world this kind of um, the scarcity mindset I think operates mm. in an even higher level and she just said to me look it swings and roundabouts like your, your turn will come everybody's turn comes and, uh, um, I just yeah. hate this word emerge or emerging oh, okay you know because there are a lot of poets who are my age this is only my second book yes, but yeah. you know other people who are my age or, or a little bit older and who have you know like you know three four books or something the um, that like support for mid-career writers is just not there. Doesn't you know? It's not the 1980s <laughs> anymore. So uh, living overseas, I'm kind of lucky because I never apply for grants. So I'm just not in the game in that way, which probably uh, helps me mm. in a way. Helps me to just like sit down and write without worrying about all that other stuff. It really struck me thinking about this book and realizing that it is 
um, your second book and that you won the Thomas Shapcott and you had your first book published in 2011, so it's a decade. That's pretty unusual in, I feel, in Australian poetry for people to wait 10 years between collections. Um, well, it wasn't really my choice. It just, the wheels move so slowly. Right. But like everybody else, there's a lag between when you compose something to when it comes out. Mm. But this is one of at least three manuscripts from those years and uh, the rest of the work just hasn't found a home yet or, you know, mm -hmm. so. Does it feel like a good thing though that there's been that amount of time and some of these poems I think I read you saying are, you know, they're, they're not recent but you still feel this, they're strong enough to include? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's the right time for, for this book, mm -hmm. for me and also for any kind of audience that the book will have also. Yeah, just thinking about that, that position as an expat and thinking about maintaining a connection to Australian poetry, I'm interested in your, like how creative relationships work for you. I mean, we're here in Luke's house, Luke mm -hmm. Beasley's house. Mm -hmm. He's obviously quite an important um, creative relationship are there. How does that work for you? Uh, I'm a terrible networker. I, suppose, <laughs> yeah. I have a couple of friends and that's about it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I have some uh, couple of friends who are poets in Finland. Um, but of course, poetry happens in Finnish there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, I always say you can't live in two countries at the same time. But one should try and keep up one's correspondence. And I have a couple of people that I keep in, in touch with. Uh, and I try and send work out and so on. Mm. I used to worry about it a lot more. Um, but, you know, I was reading and thinking a bit about Peter Porter. And we have other poets who live overseas. Jaya Savage, Dan Disney. I'm, I'm sure there are, there are others. You know, it sort of complicates things a little bit but it gives you something also. Is there a sense of having more space and because you're not connected to, oh, this grant's coming up, this controversy is taking up everybody's time? Yeah, so I don't know, it allows me to really just write the kind of poems that I like without um, worrying like, are people gonna like this? Is this the kind of work that's being published and so on? Mm. It, it, it gives me just, um, I can be more detached. I want to go back to Queensland and ask about the Queensland Poetry Festival because you're part of an event celebrating 20 years of the Thomas Shapcott. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering what you think about winning that prize, you know, a decade on. What has it meant? What do you think it means now to win that prize? Uh, well, it was important for me to, you know, not just have the book, but um, to go through the process of working with an editor. You learn a great deal. Um, so that's, I guess, the main thing that I got out of it. Who was your editor? Uh, Felicity Plunkett oh, right. was, was my editor. Amazing. Um, and also uh, Felicity and Justin Clemens were the judges. Of, 
at that time. And so uh, they advocated for my work as well. So you get some, you know, support and, um, you know, just make some friends and, you know, learn how to finish a book mm. and, and so on <laughs> and, and, you know, not take shortcuts. So uh, I guess that's in that respect, it was important for me. Um, I don't know. It probably sets up some expectations for you also, which uh, it's easier probably with subsequent books to just not have expectations for the book because you've been through it before. And But, you know, I couldn't... When the book came out, I, I, I listened to that conversation you had with Justin Clemens, actually, and he spoke about this, that when your book comes out into the public arena, something happens in your perspective to the book. He said that the work kind of uh, falls to ashes in your hands. And I thought that's, uh, that's really uh, well put. <laughs> that's what happened to me, certainly. I couldn't read that work for many, many years. Mm. Until I was asked to read at this event that you just mentioned, right. the t- celebrating 20 years of the Thomas Shapcott, and uh, I think five poets got up and read from their prize-winning collections, and I very naively emailed the um, the chair of the session to say, "Gee, wouldn't it be nice if people could read something from you know more recent work that." showed their development since, you know, the prize and all of that. But no, the, the brief was to read from your uh, Shapcott book. Right. Uh, and it, Thomas Shapcott was there, uh, yeah. which was amazing, uh, with his daughter, Kate, and he listened very attentively to each of the readings and he was responsive in, in a way that was, it was really quite beautiful. You were also on a panel called Poetry at the End of the Worlds. And I don't know if the QPF panels were recorded. I'm going to check. They're not, okay. No, they weren't. All right. Well, that gives me a a bit of an excuse then to to draw you out on this because I think this is... You mentioned on when you were talking to Brendan on 3CR that that panel uh, was talking a little bit about an article that the poet Ben Okri published in The Guardian. And I read that piece and in it, Ben writes, we must write as if these are the last days. Everything I write should be directed to the immediate end of drawing attention to the dire position we are in as a species. It means that the writing must have no frills. It should speak only truth. It calls for the highest economy. It means that everything I do must have a singular purpose. I read that and I think if if that's what's going to happen, I think I'm going to stop reading. Like that sounds like a horrific. I mean, I don't know anything about Ben Okri and I don't. Well, you know. Alice, I have a more a bit more diplomatic take <laughs> on it. Um, okay. okay. Yeah, I mean, I certainly understand the the urgency of the moment and so on. He also says that it's not given to many people to really understand that you know the end of times, and I was thinking. But hang on, like the book of Revelations, the whole Judeo-Christian tradition, you know, the, the book of Revelation, the, you know, all of, you know, secular intellectuals from the 20th century writing, you know, uh, in the nuclear age, you know, with that cloud hanging over them and, um, 
you know, Mark Grief has a wonderful book called The Age of the Crisis of Man, all about this kind of like, a, you know, existential feeling in the 20th century in, in American letters. So really, like, we're not the first people to, like, think about it, actually. Um, but maybe, it, because there is something sort of, you know, of biblical proportions about this idea that if, if we heat up by four degrees, then all of these cities are going to go underwater. And that's serious. It really is. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to have a singular purpose as a, as a poet. And uh, yeah, the, that you, you can only write about the truth and that it should have no frills. Well, think about all the writers we just wouldn't have if they were the strictures, you know, we have no Nabokov, I mean, so on and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so, and my whole thing with this book that's coming out now is, uh, yeah, it's like, it's cheeky, but it's also serious. And I, as I said on this panel, I would encourage people to read it from, you know, an eco-critical perspective, because I think all texts can be read through that lens, and I think it's good. Um, but poetry for me is all about the idiosyncrasies of the writer. And to me, this sounds like just like signing up for a, um, I don't know, signing up for something. An army? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. But yeah, no, like I said, yeah. I, I try and have a like, you know, a, a generous um, uh, try and understand where he's coming from. Uh, but the other thing is, if I, you know, when I read about climate change or existential risk, what's happening in Europe and so on, um, I, I don't usually turn to poetry for that. I will turn to like long form journalism. Yeah. Or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And the other thing, the other point I would make is, I always think about what Richard Rorty said about, you know, we can um, we can appreciate different kinds of writers. For the examples he gives is Orwell and Nabokov. He says we don't have to choose between the two. So this person is is good for this, and this person more like serves something else. It's it's pragmatic, but. Uh, yeah, uh, for me, poetry is all about idiosyncrasy and uh, uh, I don't have much time for that kind of dogma. Hmm. I was much more diplomatic on the panel, so I'll probably get into, <laughs> into trouble now. You definitely won't. Um, is there a, another poem you'd like to read just with, with that in mind? Oh. Because I... I Love that this book is not doing that. It has frills. It doesn't have a singular purpose. Um, and I mean, it's speaking truth, but, you know, very, very much slanted. Uh, yeah. More than um, slanted. Yeah. Also, it's not, the book is not in the lyric eye also. So I want to kind of get away from that. And one way I did that, it's like there's, to some of the poems, there's this uh, aleatory quality as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, for this poem, it's called Golf Flowers. 
I, I probably had two source texts for this, a book on golf and a book on flowers. So the, the t- poem is just called Golf Flowers. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'll read this. A driver for long distance shot from the flower bed to the final green, clipping branches of early blossom, scattering champagne sipping in revealing druses. Four, false alarm, crepuscular rays and crystal cleavage whistling birdie. Put another way, gypsophilia and the word of God. Many new words, a whole thesaurus of belief easy to abuse. Select a fitting phrase at buffet, basic footwork and closed face over clusters of fungus. Weapons are taken up inside the fragrant chamber on an all too rash Christmas whence all blame fell at the foot of reason. Temporary downswing, hence gyroscopic pupil remains to be seen and renovated. Warts and no worries. You make a glamorous entrance by boat, long dividing dresses into an opening of the rock. Blame now falls at the foot of fun, a good deal of our diagrams reduced to a relic of the outline and touched up with superfluous august borders. Thank you. I should have, I should have uh, prefaced that by, by saying that a druse as opposed to a dress. A druse is a, uh, a uh, cavity in a rock lined by uh, crystals. Oh, is that what that's called? Something like oh, that. There you go. Yeah, a rock cavity lined with a crust of projecting crystals. Uh, so I don't know, I like the, the, the proximity of druses and dresses yeah. and I sort of create a kind of um, envisionment, in, envisionments for the reader that play on these, you know, uh, associations and double meanings and, and multiple meanings. Mm. Let me ask you about the lyric I question, though, because when you spoke to Luke, when you did your interview for Southerly, you talked about how you wanted to get out of the poems. You said, I didn't want to be in the poems. And... I wonder why that is. It might sound like an obvious question, but... Oh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I just don't find myself very interesting That's to, what Luke to said. begin with. That's oh, exactly did what okay. Luke said. Yeah, right. Uh, so there's that. Um, I don't know. I suppose when I started out, I was reading quite a bit of like people like Robert Hass, William Matthews, oh, really? okay. and I love that kind of strain in American poetry mm. but I probably just got to a point where I realized I, I was never going to be able to do it to do that at that level in such an interesting way so that's that's part of it who was Gerald Gerald Manane said that he thinks all all books when they come out uh, should not have the author's name on them and I part of me wants to agree with that as well. I feel we have, it's part of our just literary culture that we just take for granted now, that when a book comes out, there has to be, you know, like the biography to go along with it. Mm -hmm. 
So it's a it's a lot about the the author. So that maybe, maybe the, not the the work. Yeah, <laughs> like that becomes a key to understanding the, yeah, the, the work mean, is like this person lived here and this is their background and this is their experience and also here's their writing. Yeah, I don't know. Also, I'm wary of being too earnest as well. You know, I kind of have that tendency to just be overly earnest sometimes. And, uh, you know, some of the book, the poems in the first book, I would get like embarrassingly emotional when, when I read them sometimes. And uh, I, I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just really, it's very fascinating to me because it's not a decision that I feel I could make to take myself out of the poems. Much as I can completely see the logic, the self is not very interesting, uh, it's not necessarily about you, it's like, I don't know, there's an, there's an extremity to it. Yeah, it's but of course yeah. your subjectivity comes into it. Yeah, it, you're it, still making decisions about what you're you, going to include. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm. And um, I don't know, like one should be cognizant of what is you and 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 so on. Like, yes, it should be idiosyncratic and, and so on. Um, so, yeah, that there's a like subjective element to that as well. But I guess what I'm saying is I don't want to be tethered to one way of writing poems or it just seems a bit formulaic. Yeah, fair. And, and also I think uh, because we... There is a lot of poetry in, in Australia being written from that per- perspective. And some of it is very good. Like, um, I, I think I have a pretty eclectic taste and I can I like uh, um, understand that different, there are good examples of poetry in very different modes. I won't ask you to name favourites or anything. The way that I wanted to ask about who you're reading at the moment and and who's uh, interesting to you is to ask what books you've brought with you on the trip. Uh, Okay, well, yeah, I bring some books on the the trip. Um, I'm reading currently... uh, Oh, there's a pile here. Yeah, um, Maggie Nelson's book on the New York School, Women, the New York School and Other True Abstractions. I need that book. Which is, it's really great. Um, so it's got chapters on uh, Barbara Guest and Joan Mitchell. Uh, uh, then there's a chapter on Ashbury Schuyler and O'Hara. There's a, a chapter on Bernadette Meyer. Yep. And Gertrude Stein comes into that quite a bit. So you might be interested in that. That's what I, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. That would about. be the chapter for you, oh, I think. Okay. And then um, Alice Notley and Eileen Miles as well. Yeah. It's a really wonderful book. I think... Maggie Nelson worked with David Lehman on his New York School book, The Last Avant-Garde. Right, okay. Uh, But she then went on to write this book, which is a bit more academic, but um, just uh, in many ways superior, I think. I really want to read it. I I mean, I love Maggie, but I've never gotten into a more academic stuff. It's really good. Uh, And then uh, I've been reading and thinking about Martin Johnston quite a lot. And I've been looking for this book for some years, The Typewriter Considered as a B-Trap. And I was lucky enough to find this in Brisbane. Oh, at Archives? At Archives. Amazing. Yeah. 
And at first I thought, oh, who's gone through and underlined stuff in like uh, orange um, felt pen? Oh God, but I then I realised who the, the previous owner was, Bill Jones, uh, American come Australian poet. So it's from his library and they, um, they bought all his books when he passed away a few years ago. Wow. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, um, that's so, so that's good, and and you know I try and in- interrogate some of my prejudices as well. So um, I've been going through a bit of a Laurie Duggan phase, and actually realizing you know I really appreciate Laurie Duggan much more than than I thought. Oh, you were sort of against, or no, like not, I don't know, like not super I, appreciating. Uh, yeah, I don't know what happened, but you know I've sort of realized the error of my ways. Okay. And uh, so I'm reading um, Mangroves, which I guess is from the 90s. Maybe it was a bit of a comeback book for him or something. He'd had a bit of a break. 2003, sorry. That's got a bunch of the Blue Hills in it, doesn't it? It does have some. And then it has this s- section called Sights. Uh, so they're short poems and often there's two to a page, which is interesting to have like two poems to a, a page. So I guess it's maybe more like... Um, and uh, linked series um, but there's one here Glebe 1974 um, and I stayed on Bridge Road the, the other night when I was in Glebe oh, so beautiful. I was sort of reading this in, in Glebe like you know 30 years no 40 years 50 years 50 years later almost <laughs> from when this poem was set so yeah, so that's what I'm reading. And I had to go out and buy another suitcase, Alice, because yeah, I've happens. been buying so many books since that, I've been here. That nearly happened to me just uh, going to Sydney. <laughs> I'm incorrigible. Mm. <laughs> oh, my God, I'm so bad. Yeah. Um, do you want to read the, the Duggan? I thought you were about to read it there for us. Oh, I can. Yeah. Uh, Glebe, 1974. The one-armed caretaker and his wife peered around their door as a stranger used the bathroom. I would piss in the sink to avoid them. (laughs) Two days and nights of her company, then letters in minute and perfect handwriting arrived from the Blue Mountains, containing passions to which I could not respond. Weeks later, I lay on a parallel bed in a parallel universe with glandular fever, not wishing to communicate as the trucks rumbled past down Bridge Road. It's a snap, snapshot in time, isn't it? Mm. And I think it's interesting that he sort of puts two to a page. It takes some of the weight off the poem. It, it gives the poem space to just be, um, you know, just a, a moment in time. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's Laurie. It's like it's more than lightness of touch. It's just like utter casualness. Yeah. But, but somehow it's so perfect. Mm. Um, and you've got more books in the pile there. Now we've started. Oh, no, I don't have so many here, but I'm also reading some uh, short pieces by Richard Brodigan. Okay. Revenge of the Lawn. Great title. It's a great title. And, you know, I, I worked as a young man as a turf layer. Right. So I have a, I, I think about lawn <laughs> <laughs> too much. So I love the title, Revenge of the, Revenge of the Lawn. That's good. And um, I don't know. He's probably under underappreciated. 
they they lump him in with the Beats, don't they? But he's um, probably just because he he lived in San Francisco, but um, quite singular in a way. Maybe I don't know. I was thinking like, is he a bit in the like Donald Barthelm kind of vein? But it's always the best thing about coming back to Australia for me is to fill the suitcase up with all the books that I haven't read and yeah. and so on. Yeah, yeah. We started out talking about not so much the New York School, but I guess language, language poets. I don't know that I, I really know enough about language poetry mm. to ask you an intelligent question mm. about it, but is it is it important to you? Well, I read Ron Silliman a bit and uh, his theoretical writings as well. I don't know, I find him like quite, a, like an imp- he's an important thinker for me. His poems as well, like the way that he thinks in, in his poems and uh, his uh, book, um, The New Sentence. Mm. Uh, I think that's a really, really great book. It also ta- is a book that talks uh, about what happens to a book when it becomes a commodity in the marketplace as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's interesting. He's really uh, interested in um, what happens to language uh, as it's sort of co-opted by capitalism and so on. And that's endlessly interesting to me as well. Yeah. Do you feel yeah. like that process is accelerating at the moment? I, yeah, I mean, I guess people are talking about it, but gee, I wish we would think about it more, the mm. way that these words sort of come into common usage. I was sent the other day for some, uh, along with all the rest of my colleagues, for resilience training. So, you know, that kind of thing is just like part of the air that we breathe. So we must sort of, you know, look into it a bit more and unpack it I think would be good. I feel like this is a little bit what I talked about with Justin too like I feel as if it creates a a sense of madness because words language inform how you think but when it's when this new language is coming in so quickly you haven't had time to metabolize and really Mm. understand what you are thinking Mm. and all of a sudden you know, you're at resilience training, social distancing, and you're just like, I don't really know who I am Mm. (laughs) in this moment. Yeah, I don't know. It's just good to sort of take take a step back and it's hard to sort of see the agenda be behind a lot of things. Well, I don't know that there isn't, like that's, that's the other side of it too, is that I don't know that there's an agenda I, it seems as if there's the intention behind it is usually like it's not evil. It's not actually 1984, you know, mm, mm. but the effect becomes corrosive. Yeah, I, it's a subtle kind of, you know, like manipulation, I, yeah. I suppose. And, you know, it keeps the economy going and sort of, you know... And all of that, but I seem I'm somebody who just seems to like return to the Frankfurt School and uh, you know Herbert Marcuse and some of Adorno and stuff. And for me, that stuff is always just really helpful about thinking about you know like what what's going on here? Who is this really serving? And uh, you know like Justin's really good about thinking and talking about the ways in which you know the the internet is sort of we're serving it it's not it's serving us you know he talks about the internet of things and 
Yeah, and it's of course like poetry can um, inve investigate these things. Did you want to read one more before before you go? Okay, um, I'll read. Vandalized windrows. Honest living is no free pass into a heaven of comely windrows. Out of rural silence, good heavens tampering with the silo. Rain or shine, up in arms, a litmus wrist beyond the veranda. Scrapbooks full of helping hands owing to huge atriums of thoughtful clerks. Comfort is the watchword, backed by bushiness, atop the famous bluff where we never get wet, even on rainy days, and where the action is convenient. The crest of a wave is ready to meet your every need steeped in erudition, to issue a facsimile stream through the hotel. Thank you. Yeah, that one really made me laugh when I read it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I like that poem. It's nice, you know, when your book comes out and you still like the poems. 